the partition of British India in 1947 is one of the defining events of the modern era. 70 years later, it is still influencing and shaping the world. Here at the Harvard University South Asia Institute, we present a special series of seminars in which leading scholars explore its continuing impact. Jennifer Leaning is a Francois-Xavier Banu Professor of the Practice of Health and Human Rights at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. In this extract, Professor Leaning talks about the violence that erupted during this traumatic migration. Viceroy Linlithgow, who was the Viceroy of India at that point, um, in obviously consultation with Churchill, says India, as part of the Commonwealth, is now a party to the war. That was going to be pro provide resources, material, and above all, manpower to help um, deal with the war. And Japan was already, at that point, clearly coming down into South Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, so this was an advance they needed the Indian um, resources to prevent. 1940, there was a resolution that was speaking about what was going to happen um, in the war period. It was rejected. And then the Crips mission came in 1942 again to try to figure out how they were going to think about India after the war. But Crips made it very clear that the idea was that India, if it played ball, would be a dominion afterwards. And the both the Indian Muslims and the Indian um, Hindus and the combined in the Congress Party and in the Muslim League did not like that idea. They rejected the Crips mission. They said, we're going to figure this out ourselves. In 1942, as you many of you know very well, the Congress Party ordered um, the Quit India Movement, which had spawned across the subcontinent. Um, agitations, riots, demonstrations, hassles in the provincial assemblies. And uh, the British, who were dealing with the war, full four in 42, they basically said, we can't deal with this disruption. And they imprisoned thousands of the leaders of the Congress Party. Gandhi was among them. He was released on merciful grounds later, but the bulk of the people did not get released until the end of the war in 45. And that put Jinnah in his leadership of the Jinnah League in a marvelous position to become um, a more nationwide leader for the Indian population, British Indian population. And he did that very effectively. Uh, in 1942, as you can see here, you have the Japanese invasion of Burma and the rise of the Indian National Army. Again, very, very important in terms of partition and what unfolded. Uh, and in 1943, the Bengal famine occurred. And uh, that is um, important, not directly in terms of partition, but was important in hardening attitudes toward the British. Very important. During the time and in the few years after, as people began to perceive and to interpret that famine as largely a fault of the British in terms of their securing resources for the military uses and letting um, millions of people die in the Bengal famine. All right, going quickly here, August, September um, of 1945. The war is ended in the east. Um, that is with the two atom bombs exploded over Japan. The emperor capitulated in August of uh, 1945, August 15th, actually. And this is the, um, the conclusion of the war. The United Nations was founded in April 1945. And it established a relief um, mission for the task of resettling the what were then 50 million displaced stateless refugee people in Europe after the Second World War. 
Um, the focus was only on the European theater of the war. That's a vast number of people for the population of the world at that time. They'd never seen a number of 50 million. This mixed, displaced, stateless IDP and refugees, because those words had not yet been particularly codified. The Refugee Convention was signed and ratified in 1951 applying to these Europeans. Um, and uh, it is interesting if one wants to look at the war and <clears throat> what sort of colonial features it had even coming out of it. Um, there was no attempt to identify or enumerate the refugees, IDPs, and stateless people that were in Asia as a result of the war or in Africa. The only enumeration of the disarray in World War II was in the European theater. So Clement Attlee um, was elected promptly in 1945, quite quickly, uh, to replace Winston Churchill. Churchill had been a great war leader, conservative. People were fed up with all the privations of the war. Attlee was promising a welfare state, which everybody thought in Britain that they warranted and needed. So Clement Attlee came in, and but with that came a more left approach to the colonies. Um, his platform was that colonialism is unacceptable. We have to divest ourselves of our imperial regime. The whole language coming out of 1945 was of human rights and self-determination. Um, this is what propelled all the major human rights documents and the Geneva Convention of the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949, looking at civilians, looking at human beings as individuals, protecting their voice, protecting their um, stance against an oppressive nation state. And it was in that context that Attlee and the left, the socialists in Britain were thinking about it's time for us to divest ourselves of, of um, India. Uh, and interestingly, in um, 1945, at this point, the Muslim League wins the Muslim, a very big election throughout central India. In other words, Jinnah shows the power of the Muslim League across India, not just in the Muslim areas. And so it's a, it's a significant, um, development in terms of the power plays now for who coming out of the war is going to be there. Now we need to think about 1946 as the um, birthplace of all the anxieties and harshness and um, roots of killing that occurred in the 1947 and 1948 period. Uh, another point that Sunil made, uh, it was a very major point in his remarks last week, is that he, um, although respecting the sort of the classic view of the imperial state and the colonial um, architecture and the oppression of different castes and um, classes as orchestrated by the British as being at the root of partition, um, he actually says it was much more contingent, much more dependent on later variables. It was not at all clear how it was going to unfold. And that is certainly the view I have plunging into the story, really, was where I started was in 1946. I had to go back to look at some of the lead up to it. But if you begin to start looking at 45, 46, you can see how the British catapulted into a situation that got way out of their control that they had not anticipated or imagined. And as it was happening, they made a series of very bad choices that you could also say were somewhat determined, that is influenced, I don't mean in a, a more faded way, somewhat influenced by the political situation in England, but also influenced by their growing sense of losing control in the subcontinent. And if you recall, there were a small number of British civilian officials you know, on the order of 1,500, 2,000 to administer the entire subcontinent. 
there were um, about 80,000 um, British and Indian troops based there after World War II. But in terms of the, the actual administrative control of this vast colony, uh, the administrative structure was relatively lean. What happened is people governed and administered through Indian um, officials that reported into that thin layer of Brits that reported up to the Viceroy that then reported to England. So when they were dealing with the disruption of the Indian state as it was becoming, beginning to emerge, there was a sense that, oh my God, we can't actually say to somebody, you do that, write this letter, put this spin on your inspection on the Fort Nartley report so that we can basically begin to have a common narrative that we give back to England and we can have a common control that we maintain as we have for decades in India. It was not working. And that was part of the, um, the nationalism that was arising. So I would like to note that the role of the British um, Indian Army uh, was very, very important. But as it was demobilized, you had a repatriation of the INA as well, the Indian National Army, which had um, started uh, and basically continued to be formed by a nucleus of uh, Indian prisoners of war who were with the British Army, prisoners of war by the Japanese captured in Burma. And then as time went on, more and more um, Indians who were both in the military as POWs, but also in the military in the Burma theater as well, began to um, ally with the INA. And as they were coming out with the Japanese having been defeated, there was considerable controversy, at least on the British side, about what to do with the demobilized INA soldiers, who numbered in the thousands. And as they began to spill into um, India, there were talks about having treason trials, imprisoning them all, having a bill of particulars against the group or against the individual leaders. And the Brits came to realize quite quickly that this was not going to sit well with the Indian populace. There was um, a persistent sense that these men were heroes. They had opposed the British rule and hegemony. And so the British basically um, demobilized them. Um, arrested and imprisoned a few that they thought were actually very, very dangerous in terms of even terrorist attitudes towards the British rule. But the great bulk of the Indian National Army blended in with the tens of thousands of British, I mean of Indian troops that were de demobilized from the British Army. That demobilization included you're out of the army, but it did not extend to any successful disarming of these troops. And these troops were battle-hardened. They'd been in jungle warfare. They'd been on the plains of North Africa. They'd been in many different parts of the British Empire during World War II. And as they came out, you had battle-hardened men with actually fairly sophisticated weapons um, moving back into the Indian population. And if we think about the tremendous violence that uh, everyone witnessed in the Punjab on both sides, um, leading up to partition, the boundary uh, discussion, and then after an independence. Um, a growing body of literature is looking at the um, indications and going village by village looking at this. And this is what we will be exploring also with them. Uh, that's not my expertise, but 
but we have a particularly good guy on the Pakistan side is looking at this, and it supports more recent histor histories now that said much of the organization of the killing was done by military officers or military enlisted men with very sophisticated weapons. And it was sort of in a siege village. You send in some shock troops basically to kill a few people, rape a few women, force some of them to jump in the well. People are terrorized. They come out and they're out of the village and then you shoot them down. You burn the village and then you have a scorched earth and you move on to the next place. And uh, this, is, this is how a lot of the organized violence, both in East and West Punjab, is being ascribed to an organized cadre of people. Now, who was leading it? Who are the major um, uh, manipulators of this potential capacity and then this actualized capacity? Uh, there are many different views of this. Uh, but basically, it is the radicalized versions of the communal um, sectors, that is RSSS, radicals in the Muslim League, and, and radicalized Sikhs. And these were the groups who got these armed guys and actually affected some of them, the most intense and widespread killings. <clears throat> we'll come back to this when we talk about the mortality um, that has been identified. So I will just um, lead now to this, this important period here that where you have the direct action day that is in um, response to the Brits in the sense that we need to get out, the Brits need to leave. And you had the massive killings in Calcutta, which was um, a, um, a serious level of violence. Five to 10,000 people killed. The numbers are not really well known because as you can imagine, in this mayhem, it's difficult to count. And uh, people were um, not, they just couldn't keep track of it. And then you had the reprisal, reprisal riots in uh, Bihar, UP, and it flowed into violence in the Punjab when they heard about what was going on. So there's, there are many newspapers that track across. There are radios. The press was very active in spreading the word across the vast bulk of the subcontinent. And India was becoming much more than it had been pre-war, a unified media space. And this is an interesting aspect, again, that I, um, I'm not studying, but I'm benefiting from those who do, because rumors uh, it's not just sort of from one village to another. It was the press saying this, picked up in another press, amplified in that um, pass-off and exchange. Uh, but it was awful in itself in terms of the killings of individuals, of groups, the slaughter of um, women and children, the burning and looting of houses and households, and the flight of people from these major uh, urban areas. And so the effects are that you began to see increased internal migration in India with a partition of small p according to your communal affiliation. So Muslims were going to places of uh, putative safety, Hindus were clustered together, and you saw the um, beginning of homogenization of settlements in, in Bengal. Uh, this is an early warning sign. I mean, it's quite late, but from this, those who study mass atrocity and genocide, this is an early warning sign of something terrible that is happening. People beginning to flee the other, going to a homogenized communal sec uh, sectional settings, um, and then sparks of uh, atrocity that occur sporadically. You see this and you begin to worry that this is going to get organized and take place on a mass scale. And that, is, of course, is what happened. Now, in 1946, <clears throat> I've mentioned this um, about the demobilization in India, but the, this is why the war is so important in understanding the British side of this. They were exhausted, depleted, drained of human capital. 
Uh, they had to impose very, very harsh rationing systems on food, um, fuel, uh, and clothing, and any luxury goods. Um, uh, parenthetically, my father was with the British Foreign Service, and he was planning to return from the U.S., where he'd been posted back to England in 1952, and he had the ration card telling him what he had to bring or not, and said, the winters are cold, bring all the blankets, all the wool clothes, and all the wool socks you possess mm -hmm. as you come into England from the States, meaning saying you can't buy that here. And that was in 1952. The colonial regime was really beginning to fray, as I mentioned, in the sense that um, they couldn't control their um, Indian subordinates in any sort of line mode that had been civilized, and they weren't going to use force at that level. And uh, so there was this growing sense that they had to leave. <clears throat> so here we get to end of 46 and the period from January to May 1947, an acceleration of people beginning to move in communal um, homogenization and this rapid pace that feels a little bit like the last six months of the United States right now, where you begin to see the totally, totally unsettled situation where um, you have uh, Mountbatten replacing Linlithgow coming in, you know, mid-1947. Uh, that is because Attlee thought that Mountbatten was going to move faster and more decisively. Linlithgow was more deliberative and been around for a while. And so Mountbatten comes in, clean broom, and the deal was that he was going to sweep this up. Okay, and so what he in early announces is that there's going to be, it's February, just before he arrived, but this was planned by the Brits, that they were going to announce an early um, leaving of the subcontinent and um, independence for uh, June of 1948. Within, within a span of about three and a half months, the public announcement from Montbatten is, nope, we're moving it forward. This is in June 3rd, he brings it up. You are now going to have to look at independence in August of 1947. Uh, really abruptly, that abruptly. And the British, uh, the British service, uh, and both the foreign service, the civil service, and the military service, they had inklings that things were being accelerated, but it was a surprise to them when they heard that announcement as well. The sign of inklings is at beginning, and this is documents in the British Library that not a lot of people have bothered to paw through. I sort of fell on it and found it fascinating. It's starting in February of 1947, in both in Whitehall, but also in directions to the um, Viceroy, and then all to the governors generals of the provinces. Um, who in your domain, uh, whether it's Bihar or Punjab, who in your domain, who is um, a British officer, wants to leave? A British enlisted man wants to leave. So what, is the, what are we dealing with the attrition of the British force here? And then secondly, who in the civil service wants to leave? And here they made this partition that was very, this distinction which was very, very clear, which would be um, British, um, American, Australian, uh, you know, anybody who'd been an ally. And then there was a category of European, which included a lot of the refugees from Europe. There were a lot of Jews, Jews and Poles and Germans that had come in after World War II. So there was a, quite a mixture of Europeans who were not British and Australian and American. This is the hierarchy. And then um, uh, British civilians of all kinds, and then Anglo-Indians, and then Indians. That was the that was the order of people that would have preference for the boats to get out. 
Now, why were they worried about boats to get out? Because the British were afraid that as the riots were accelerating and they were losing control of the cities and towns and things were unanticipated, that they could not control it with the forces they had. The police, Indian police, were becoming particularly communalized. The soldiers were not interested in doing this anymore. They'd been in the war forever, and they were getting drawn into the communal aspirations and antagonisms. And so they couldn't control it, and they were afraid they were afraid that this community of increasingly distressed populations, some of them heavily armed, and they knew that, would turn on them. And that the targets in this rioting and violence would shift to the Brits and the Europeans, and they needed to get people out. There's a lot about, let's get the women and children out first, et cetera. The whole enterprise, which is one reason probably why it hasn't been um, written about, is that it foundered on the fact that they didn't have enough ships to take them out. And Bombay, which was the main port, didn't want it to be messed up by all of these big ships coming in with people leaving. The, so Bombay the, basically was not very interested in being part of this. Um, and that would have been the major um, port. But the ships were scattered all over the world. And they couldn't get them back in time. And there wasn't fuel to bring them back. So you couldn't evacuate. So that was. That was a kerfuffle that occupied many of the documents over six months, and then it ended in nothing. All right, so the more important story here is that you have this negotiations on the transfer of power. Um, I'm not going to go into the politics of it. It's dense. Um, historians have spent their lives on this, and it's a very, very interesting story. Uh, uh, but the point is that Mountbatten in May is fed up. He can't get anybody to agree. He goes back for discussions. And when he comes back, he basically is on a very fast track. He makes the June 3rd announcement, this is what's going to happen, this is how it's going to be divided. You're going to have to have basically division into three parts. Uh, we've got to have basically governments that can work together. And by the way, we're going to advance the independent state till August 15th. <clears throat> now, the um, very important part comes down to here. What was the boundary going to be? So there was a notional boundary that everybody had in their heads in June and July between of the Punjab and of Bengal. But they had Sir Cyril Radcliffe come in and begin in five weeks to map the boundaries. He had two commissions, one on the Bengal side and one on the Punjab side. And uh, so he arrives um, with less than five weeks to do the work. All right. Uh, so I've mentioned this. And this is, the, um, this is the direction. This is the terms of reference. And uh, the award was announced August 17th, deliberately, two days after the um, independence, in order not to cause unrest prior. But people had in their heads the, a, a tentative sort of June boundary that they heard talked about. They already knew that there was going to be a division between Muslim and Hindu in Punjab, and something similar, although it turned out to be much harder to do and didn't happen so much in, in Bengal. And um, so there was already great restlessness brewing in the countryside um, after June.